This week on The Energy Show, we'll be reviewing a new book called Fueling Freedom. This book is subtitled Exposing the Mad War on Energy. The book was written by Stephen Moore and Kathleen Hartnett White. The two authors are well-known and, and have really, really interesting economic and uh, energy backgrounds. Stephen Moore is the chief economist at the Heritage Foundation, which is a kind of a conservative think tank. Formerly, he was an economics writer and editorial board member at the Wall Street Journal. Now, Stephen Moore focuses on advancing public policies that increase the rate of economic growth in the United States. Yeah, great idea. That's very, very good. Now, Kathleen White is a distinguished senior fellow at the Armstrong Center for Energy and the Environment at the Texas Public Policy Foundation. Looking at the book, the premise of the book, I really initially agree with the premise of the book, that you kind of look back over um, the past 500 years or so, 1,000 years, 100,000 years, fossil fuel energy has been the lifeblood of the modern world. And, you know, to kind of talk about this in the book, and I've, I've mentioned this on other energy shows, you know, man created fire. That was based on wood. But then we pretty quickly in the industrial age started using fossil fuels initially with coal. But, you know, before the industrial revolution, as I mentioned, we depended on burning wood. And then we, we kind of were burning animal fats, really smoky, kind of gross, smelled bad. And then we candle wax and then whale oil. And then we started finding fossil fuel oils that were burning relatively cleanly, you know, didn't leave a lot of stinky smoke. But what's what's interesting, what's happening, totally agree, is as we were able to start to harness the energy in oil, harness the energy in, in even coal, natural gas, the energy density allowed us to do things that we could never do before. We were able to, you know, gas lights, send gasoline for vehicles, oil for heating houses. It really began to fuel the the modern world. But Here's kind of where I start to diverge from the conclusions and the premises of the book is they're mostly talking about how important the energy innovations were, fossil fuel energy innovations. You know, that's great. When we started, when we hit oil in uh, Pennsylvania 100 years ago, 120 years ago, till we started to benefit from fracking and things like that, it's really helped our economy. But that was kind of the old energy situation. And where I kind of diverge in the book is they're looking back and saying what used to work is still going to continue to work. And, you know, I kind of look forward. It's like, no, this, that's really going to change. Uh, now, what's what's also interesting about the book is it's become very highly politicized about climate change and things like that. So just moving ahead, the book makes an unapologetic case for how important fossil fuels are. And it really doesn't take into account current research and current facts. You know, in some ways, I think that the book was probably required reading for the Republican National Committee's uh, new platform where they unanimously declared that coal is an abundant, clean, affordable, reliable domestic energy resource. Now, I kind of agree with two of those things, which is abundant and reliable, but coal's certainly not clean. And there's just no way. And coal's not necessarily affordable when you compare it to natural gas or even solar. So let's kind of, you know, taking a look at the book and looking at agreement points I have, because I agree with about half of the book, strongly disagree with the other half. We're going to talk about that later. But I agree with about half of the book. Energy is absolutely critical to our society from when we started burning wood till we burned uh, tallow, animal fats, coal, oil, gas, just kind of making this progression towards more modern fuels, nuclear and wind and solar. And, you know, who knows what's next? But right now we're kind of living in an environment where it's natural gas, wind, and solar. And just like we stopped using animal fats, wood, we've, we've almost completely stopped investing in new coal, and we're moving away from oil. And um, we will also move away eventually from natural gas because these new technologies are better. Now, what's also a fact, and it's, it's a little bit abstract, but our society is moving towards using energy in a more intensive and concentrated way. 
you just kind of look at things from when you had a candle, it would put out one candle power, it'd be this like smoky little thing, and then we had an incandescent light bulb, it's, it used a lot of electricity, you got a certain amount of light out of it, and, then, and now we're using LED lighting. Higher technology, more concentrated, cleaner, more intensive. I mean, one tiny little pinprick light, um, LED puts out as much light as a, as a light bulb used to do. So it's more intensive. Now, there's a, a great book that's called The Bottomless Well, written by a guy named Peter Huber. Basically talks about why we'll never run out of energy. I just kind of a little bit of experience with Peter. He was my best professor in, in uh, energy in college, um, in, in uh, fluid mechanics, going way back in the 70s, and, and wrote a really interesting book. And the conclusion that Peter had, and we kind of talk about this also in Fueling Freedom, is people are going to use more energy, not less. We're using more. We're going to use heat pumps instead of gas furnaces. We're, we're using more LED lighting. We're using computers. There's, you look around the house, there's so many things that are plugged in. 50 years ago, we didn't have that. So that I agree totally that we're going to be using more energy and we need more energy supply. Now, we kind of get into some specifics here in the book. And one of the other things that they talk about are some of the new forms of energy, renewable energy. And the book comes out against solar leases. Now, they're critical of solar, but they're particularly critical of solar leases. I agree. If you're thinking about solar, now that there are so many good financing programs for solar, whether it's bank loans, whether it's PACE, whether it's credit unions at your business, you don't need to take out a 15 or 20 or 25 year solar lease or a solar PPA. You can just borrow the money. And Fueling Freedom talks about how bad solar leases are. I think that they were a great innovation. I think that they really helped grow the solar market, but we don't need them anymore. But the book kind of talks about that historically, and, you know, the book was written in 2016. You should talk a little bit. I think they need to really talk a little bit about some of the other financing programs. They're just great. Other agreement points in the book. They talk about peak oil. Eh, you know what? I was wrong about that. I thought we were at peak oil. We're not. We keep finding more and more oil. We, we drill differently. We dig deeper. We explore in new places. I think we got a lot of fossil fuels in the ground for a really long time, you know, more than 100 years, even at the current rate of consumption, because we keep finding more. Whether we should use that fossil fuel or not, different issue, but there's plenty. You know, some of the conclusions in the book about how economics will dictate what energy sources we use, I totally agree. You just look back to, to what people are using and how they're transitioning to wind and solar, because it's cheaper. Talking about the U.S. oil reserves, we, we have based on some recent research, the biggest oil reserves in the world. I probably I don't really agree with that completely, but it doesn't matter. We got plenty of oil in the ground in the US. Russia has lots of oil, the Middle East lots and lots of oil. The importance of jobs in the energy industry. We're creating so many jobs, whether they were in solar, whether they were wind, or historically in oil and gas extraction in the U.S. It's kind of, uh, we're losing jobs there left and right, but we created a lot of jobs over the last 10 years, and that was something that was great for our economy. So those are some of the things I agree about. Another thing that I agree about is how we have to be careful about picking winners and losers. And the job of government is really to decide where to invest taxpayer money for future benefits. And it's it, it, you're making bets. You're making investments. And, and the definition of a bet is that they're not all going to pan out. So some are going to work. Some are not. And you look at back, you look back over the last 150 years. I mean, we, the, the U.S. invested in the oil industry. I remember back in the 70s, a lot of investments in sin fuels, lots of investments in fracking, lots of investments in clean coal, just like there have been lots of investments in, in wind and solar and now in batteries. So it's, it's not easy to stop these investments. I absolutely don't think we don't want to stop these investments because they're the basis of future technology. You know, you look at what the benefits we had from fracking, whether you like it or not, those investments paid off. And the benefits that we got from investments in solar, absolutely paying off. So those are, those are some of the things that I agree about. And in a few minutes, we're going to kind of come back and talk about some of the things I disagree about.
So this week we're talking about a new book called Fueling Freedom, Exposing the Mad War on Energy. And you know, previously in the show we were talking about the background of the book and a lot of the points on which I agree with the premises and the conclusions in the book. You know, things, things like how our society is becoming more energy intensive, how we need a lot of energy, how we've got these energy transitions, and really you know, how important the economics of energy sources are to the types of energy we're actually going to use. Well, so in this next part of the show, I'd like to just kind of talk about some of the points on which I disagree with the conclusions in this book. And the book is really well-researched, lots and lots of data. I mean, heck, the, like the last third of the book is all just footnotes, so there's a lot of data in there. The problem is that a lot of the data is, is out of date. It's not really that current. And that's kind of a problem. I mean, you should kind of talk about the current price of solar, not the price of solar five years ago, things like that. But so, so specifically, as a result of some of the information in the book not being completely updated, and, you know, possibly that the older facts uh, help make the conclusion in the book, which is uh, we need fossil fuels, those older facts are better to justify why we need fossil fuels as opposed to the current new facts, which is solar economics and wind economics and renewable economics are pretty darn good. So just in terms of what the economics of solar are, I'm going to look and see what the size of a system that the typical American household would need to completely power their house. In other words, generate as much electricity as they use. Typical house uses 1,000 kilowatt hours a month. That's the U.S. average. In California, an 8.4 kilowatt system, that's like 30 solar panels. That would generate about 1,000 kilowatt hours a month. That system, at current prices, without any incentives, no tax credits, no nothing, $23,000, that works out to electricity that's generated at $0.08 cents a kilowatt hour. And that's including expected maintenance. Typically, for a system like this, you might have to replace the inverter you know, once during the 25-year life of the system. If with the tax credit, with the 30% investment tax credit, that works out to electricity for less than $0.06 cents a kilowatt hour. So you, know, you look at your electric bill, and you say, gee, here in California, my average, the average rate that homeowners pay is about 25 cents a kilowatt hour versus six. Pretty darn cheap with solar. So it's clear to me that solar is a cost-effective technology for homeowners. We're going to talk a minute about how clear it is for utilities also. Now, it also this makes total sense that wind is cost-effective. There's so much wind power that's been sold in, in windy areas in the United States. Why? Because you can crank out electricity, you know, kind of whenever it's windy, at two or three cents a kilowatt hour. Once you pay for those systems, pay for the installation of the system, a little bit of maintenance, they just keep cranking along. And the same with solar. There's basically no maintenance. You invest up front, put it in, and it just works. As opposed to fossil fuels, which require you to continuously buy those fossil fuels and do a lot of maintenance on the plants, or nuclear or other technologies where it takes a lot of people to operate it. I mean, big solar fields in the desert that might be generating 100 megawatts, you know, there's like a half a dozen people running the whole thing, and that's all you need. Now, the dilemma is that wind and solar are location dependent. So you, know, you, you really can't put a windmill anywhere. It has to be in, a, in a, a wide open area that's windy and you know, not a lot of people around and you need, you need a lot of sun for solar. But what's happened is that the economics for solar have become so good because of decreases in cost of the equipment and the same thing for wind. So point A, that's the main thing that I disagree with about the book is the economics for solar and wind are really, really good and better than fossil fuels. We talk about how the economics for wind and solar are better than fossil fuels. It's not just me that's saying it. Utilities all over the country have come to that exact same conclusion. Utilities are putting in more solar power generation capacity than natural gas. Nuclear, forget about it. Plants are being shut down left and right. Um, San Onofre plant was um, just announced to be shut down. That other plants around the country are being shut down, even though they're still working. It's just cost too darn much to maintain those plants. Coal, forget about it. The coal is as inexpensive as a fuel. 
it pollutes a lot. There's environmental regulations, basically, that we just got to clean that up. And, and uh, we're no longer accepting um, the, the polluting air. I mean, I drove into the studio today, and there's a big fire down in Monterey. The sky throughout Northern California, the Silicon Valley, San Francisco area, it's smoky. It smells bad. I don't want to be living in an environment where I have coal plants and, and it stinks. And I've been to China a lot. I'm really glad that we have strong environmental regulations here because the air is, is pretty darn clean. But I digress a little bit. As far as solar being cheaper for utility, I mean, here's, here's some recent data that in, tw- in the first quarter of 2016, 64% of all the new generating capacity in the country, all the new electric generating capacity was solar, 64%. 33% was wind. Only 1% was natural gas. So complete shift towards renewables. I mean, and, and, and that, that shift has been very, very steady. Going back to 2010, only 4% of the, the, the new electric capacity was solar, and now it's 64%. And uh, you know, every quarter, quarter after quarter, year after year, we're seeing that transition. Now, we've got a lot of electric generation capacity in the country, so it's going to take you know, 10, 20 years to make a really big transition. But it's happening, it's happening steadily, and it's happening because of economics. So for example, we talked about it. It's rooftop solar. It's just the cheapest way to generate electricity for anybody with a sunny roof. I mean, it's kind of just just put it in perspective. What if you, as a homeowner, and you're driving a gasoline car, what if you could just drill a hole in your backyard and out of that hole, you'd pump gasoline? How do you think the uh, gasoline companies would be, the, the fossil fuel companies would feel? They'd be pretty bumped out. I mean, you can basically get their product for, you know, let's say, an investment of $12,000. You never have to pump gas again. Well, the same thing happens with rooftop solar on your roof. You put the solar panels on your roof, you really, the, the amount of money you spend with the utility is going to plummet. So just kind of uh, diving back in to the issues within this book, Fueling Freedom, global warming. It's like, hello, I'm with 97% of the climate scientists in the world who think that it's extremely likely that global warming is due to human activity. Now, in Fueling Freedom, they poo-poo the whole global warming thing, and it's, it's, it's really portrayed more as a, as a hoax. That's just not the case. You know, you just kind of cherry-pick a few statistics. But I'm no scientist. I've heard people say that before. I'm an engineer. I took a bunch of science courses. But, um, you know, I'm with 97% of the, the climate scientists. That's really important, and that's one of the main reasons why we really can't rely on uh, fossil fuels forever. Next point of contention with the book. Battery storage, it's improving really fast. The EV industry is cranking out more and more batteries cheaper and cheaper, and those battery costs are coming down very quickly, and you've got to look ahead. Don't look back and see the batteries used to be $1,000 a kilowatt hour. got to look ahead for when they're going to be $50 or $100 a kilowatt hour. That completely changes the economics of solar because now with cheap batteries, anybody can store power during the day and use it at night. Now, Currently, batteries are still not cost-effective in the mainland USA because the, the rates aren't really reflective of the benefits of batteries. They're okay in Hawaii, maybe Australia, some other countries, but no doubt in my mind that in, in three, four, five years, they're really going to make sense here in California. And that's why one of the things that we're offering at Cinnamon Solar is to install storage-ready systems. Basically, make sure you've got solar, you've got the inverter, everything's good for storage. And we suggest that you wait a few years before you invest in batteries because the batteries you pay for now, they might be three or $400 a kilowatt hour, three, four, five years. It's going to be down to 50 or 100 So make sure you're equipped for it, save with solar now, but, but wait a little bit on the batteries. Another issue here about the book is talking about utility cost shifting. So that's, that's a kind of a technical issue, and we've done entire shows on this. But utilities are complaining that the, the, the solar people are raising rates for everybody else. And the reason why that's happening is because the utilities are guaranteed a certain rate of return. So if some of their customers leave 
because there's a cheaper alternative like solar, then the, the customers that are stuck have to pay more money. It's, it's not the new solar customer's fault. It's not even necessarily the utility's fault. It's the way that they're compensated. It's the utility business model. That model's got to change. You look at some of the recent studies that were done about this cost-shifting issue. The, the best study that I've seen, it came out a few months ago by the Brookings Institute. They did a meta-study. They looked at all the studies they could find that were done by public utilities commissions, by national labs, and academics. They didn't look at studies that were done by utilities because they show that there's a lot of cost shifting. They didn't even look at studies that were done by the solar industry, which basically said there's, you know, solar's a benefit. But the uptake of this recent Brookings Institute study was that net metering frequently benefits all ratepayers when all the costs and benefits are accounted for. So you gotta account for everything. You gotta account for the, the investments that utilities need to make in transmission, distribution, and generation. You gotta account for grid stability. You gotta account for environmental benefits, stabilized prices, peak generation. So when you take all that into account, this Brookings Institute study showed that, you know what, on the whole, solar is a benefit to ratepayers. Now, it's Obviously not a benefit to utilities if they don't own it, but it's a benefit to ratepayers, and they're the ones that, that really need to be considered. Okay, another conclusion that, that I don't agree with is renewable energy is growing very rapidly. The book doesn't talk about that, but you look at the astronomical rate of growth in renewable energy, and we absolutely can indeed achieve 50% of our energy needs by 2050. Things are going to change. So, you know, I, I kind of look at this book, and half of it I agree with, half of it I don't. The parts that I don't agree with basically are because there's facts that, that are just not current or, or not missed or not ignored. So, anyway, that's all the time we've got on this week's Energy Show. Thanks for everybody for joining us, and if you missed any of today's show, you can always go to our website at cinnamonsolar.com and listen to the podcast.